Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hey, I'm Cassie J. Snyder, and I'm the author of the book Fine, Fine Music. I host a reading series in Brooklyn and San Francisco called The Worst, which is writers, musicians, and other weirdos of note telling stories about their worst roommates, dates, job interviews, and all sorts of other awful yet hilarious things. So what I'm reading today is an excerpt from Fine Fine Music, and it's a story called Homegrown. Here goes. There's something magical about the 70s soft rock that plays over Long Island in an invisible cross-stitch. The harmless lull of xylophones, a dull tenderness reminding you that maybe life's not so bad. If the Captain and Tennille, Elton and Kiki, or any of those soft rock and power duos could exist in perfect sexless harmony, then maybe your recent breakup and the subsequent shattering of your life aren't so bad. You'll work it out. Come on. They just don't make classic rock radio like they do in the free states, and on my drive home to New York, I was indescribably excited when I was able to catch the staticky tail end of We're Not Gonna Take It somewhere near the middle of Pennsylvania. Hell yeah, East Coast, I said, pounding the steering wheel. We are not gonna take it. I, at the moment, was one with D. Snyder, though I've always felt a bit more at one with D. Snyder than most, because we are both from Long Island and share a similar last name. The radio got clearer as I neared home and more classic rock stations began to pop up, like an audible game of whack-a-mole. We were closing in on the mother load. Blue Oyster Cult, Rat, Sabbath. I heard them all with a steadily increasing clarity as we approached Lake Ronkonkoma, a town where it is still 1981. Maybe the fact that I've grown up in the land that time forgot has contributed to the disconnect I feel with most people my own age. It's kind of like an itch or a throat tickle, this feeling. I never got an iPod because I've always been able to turn on the radio with a fair chance of hearing the Van Halen version of Pretty Woman on any one of five classic rock stations. Those are good odds, and I feel safe here, in my car on the Long Island Expressway, returning home with all my worldly possessions packed tightly in the trunk. I'm lucky in a way, like that guy at the horse track, leaning over the railing, wearing lucky socks and lucky everything, smelling like old luck and hard times. I've got my dog in the car, and I'm coming home to where I live one block from the record store. It's the end of the world as we know it is playing on the radio. Like I said, good odds. I've toyed with the idea of satellite radio, but it just seems like cheating. Radio is not given. It is earned. The feeling of accidentally tuning in to your most favorite song in the world is unbeatable, and I guess I never lost my appreciation for the radio in its purest form, commercials and all. From 1991 until 2000, my parents drove a 1986 Buick Regal whose faculties as a car steadily eroded in its 15 years of use. Though it came equipped with a factory AM-FM tape deck, the cassette player never worked, and after only a few weeks of owning it, someone broke off the antenna while my mother was in a store buying cigarettes. I came out and some son of a bitch took it, she said, sparking a basic ultralight while we all stood dumbfounded around the car, like the cast of CSI, white trash. Looks like they snapped it off, my stepfather made an educated guess, feeling the jagged nubbit of metal where the antenna once was. Are we going to get another one? My sister, Carly, and I asked. That was our main concern. 
Would we be able to hear CNC Music Factory on the Top 40 station? Would we again hear the careless whisper of George Michael telling us to have faith? My parents did not answer. Instead, they went inside to stew in the juices of their misfortune, speaking only to mutter the word, son of a bitch, and to ask if we wanted Burger King for dinner. I had a radio in my room, but a car stereo seemed necessary for the times when my parents would take us on long rides to do boring things, driving for what seemed like hours or days to look at tile and carpet samples. Can we try the radio? One of us would ask. Then they would turn it on for the serenade of white noise. Can we please get an antenna? We would ask. They're expensive, and I'd have to rewire a bunch of stuff in the car, and I sure as hell don't have time for that. What if we went to the junkyard? Usually I would be the one to venture into the no-man's-land territory of suggesting a step in the right direction. How about you go to the junkyard? Their response was always bewildering. How would I get there? How would I identify another 1986 Buick Regal in a mountain of rusted cars and twisted metal? And how would I know how to extract and then install an antenna? They turned off the radio, and we drove in baffled silence. Music had at one time probably been important to both of my parents. My mother had a huge collection of 45s collecting dust in the attic. I knew my stepfather had seen Rat once and also had every good Aerosmith album on cassette. If our car rides had been wrought with meaningful insights to the depth of each other's character, then I would have understood. If we had driven to Sears into the gas station, choked with tears of momentous joy from the revelations being had, then perhaps we would not have had need for a working radio. Instead, there were accusations of the one who smelled it being the one who dealt it, and the empty silence of four people bound by the obligations of blood and marriage. Carly farted. She started it. Shut up, both of you. Occasionally, if we drove past a radio tower or perhaps a magnetic field, one station would come on. That station was WBLI, the worst radio station ever. Its format was, and still is, awful pop songs for divorced moms to jam out to. Carly and I became experts at changing lyrics on the fly, a skill that has carried over into my adulthood. As a dog owner, I've discovered that the word love is easily replaced in any song with pug for an instant hit, as in, what's pug got to do with it, or ain't talking about pug. Tina Turner and David Lee Roth can eat their hearts out, because with a radio and a small dog to dance with, I'm an unstoppable hurricane of rock and roll. Even after I started to buy CDs, I still tuned into the FM to tape songs off the radio. I did this well into my teenage years, watching Touched by an Angel with my mom on Friday nights, then retreating to my room in the hopes that I might catch Sunday Bloody Sunday playing on WBAB. I had tons of tapes, the first five seconds of every song cut off and the scramble of stopping whatever it was I was doing to get to the record button. I gave those tapes to Carly one day in a seizure of judgment, and she taped over them with Tupac, No Doubt, and Mace. A sacrilege. Somewhere in the world, Bono was crying. Actually, it's been statistically proven that every 30 seconds, somewhere in the world, Bono really is crying. My parents did not get another car until I was 16, deeming the Buick unsafe and allowing it to rot in the driveway on bald tires until I passed my road test. They bought a minivan, and nearly a decade later, our prayers for a working stereo were answered. That same summer, they got a season passes to Six Flags. It was like Christmas, though the closest theme park to our area was Six Flags Great Adventure in New Jersey, which should pretty much be called Six Flags over hot dogs and gang members. 
The real cherry on the trip was that our parents gave the okay for us to go to the drive through safari attached to the park. Anytime we'd been there on vacation, the vinyl top of the Buick as well as the many other parts that were peeling off of it prevented us from the experience of being up close and personal with the angry, displaced creatures of the African grasslands. My sister and I were unreasonably excited about this windfall of good fortune. I'm totally going to keep a monkey, said Carly. She was 14 and had unrealistic expectations for the limitations of a drive through safari. I'm going to touch a giraffe, I said. There were a lot of other things I should have been hoping to touch that day. Touch a life, touch some eyebrow wax, touch some self-respect. However, as life in the Rolling Stones have taught me, you can't always get what you want. We rolled through the safari park, first past ostriches and llamas and other long-necked creatures, then rhinoceroses, elephants, hippos, and other things that looked like they could really mess up a minivan. Don't roll down the window. Somebody farted! It's just animal crap. Don't touch the window. I can't breathe! You're the ones who wanted this so bad! We went through a tall gate, clearly separating whatever we were approaching from the rest of the animal population. Do not roll down windows. Keep all hands inside. Retract all car antennas. Why are there so many warning signs? Carly asked. How come you're not retracting the antenna? I asked. Doesn't retract, my stepfather said, shrugging. And with that, the monkeys were upon us. The monkeys of the Six Flags Great Adventure Safari Park were unlike any other breed of monkey. They were not the Megilla Gorilla or Dunstan Checks In I had seen on TV. These monkeys had been mutated in much the same way the men and women of New Jersey were mutated. Their fur stood on end, teased in the fashion of a groupie giving someone a handy near a dumpster outside of a Bon Jovi tribute show in Tom's River. They were angry, sad, and captive like the protagonists of a Springsteen song. If we had been allowed to roll down the windows, we would have found they smelled like suave hair products, blue-collar frustration, and hate. And... In the true spirit of Jersey, they leaped on our car in a frenzy of rage. Don't open the windows. They're trying to take off the license plate. They're eating the paint off of that other car. I don't want one anymore. Then, as if they sensed our biggest fear, one of them saw the antenna and went for it. We watched in mute terror as the monkey looked right at us and swung the antenna from side to side. Oh, God, I cried, openly bargaining with a higher power. Not now! Not after all these years! I'll give anything! Ordinarily, I would have been embarrassed to have such a public freakout. But at that moment, as the monkey stared at us with yellow eyes, sitting on the hood of the minivan, nibbling the end of the antenna, we were a family, and we were in this together. Go faster! Carly said. Kill them! I found myself saying. Me, the vegetarian. Son of a bitch, my stepfather said. Without saying another word, he quietly navigated us through to the exit, where the monkeys were zapped by an invisible force and ran off to attack another car. There were a few scratches and a smudge of monkey crap on the roof, but we had made it through, my parents, my sister, the antenna, and I. And the hamburgers, the ten-dollar cups of soda, and even the air sucked out of our lungs on the free fall tasted much sweeter that afternoon on the day we got attacked by monkeys. Growing up in Lake Ronkonkoma has taught me a lot about what it means to be truly disappointed. The trash-strewn parking lots, the seasonal homeless drifters, the syringes on the beach at the lake. But being away from it has taught me about what it means to be grateful. The five classic rock stations which may or may not be playing Twisted Sister at any given time. The record store down the street. 
and the family sleeping upstairs as I turned the key to come home again. I was burning to leave for so long, but it's nice to know they're here, these things I come home to, like a song I can't change the words to and probably wouldn't want to anyway. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.